I had to drink or I had to I had to take some uh, Valium or something like that to calm my nerves uh, just to function. It was a very scary place. I was lying in the bed, you know, my heart is rushing because uh, my heart rate was too high. I had vocal cord infection, I lost my voice and, you know, coughing blood from that. And I couldn't then stop, so all I could do was drink. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thedepressionfiles. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health. Topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the show. This is Al Levin, the host of The Depression Files. Thank you for joining us. Uh, on the line today, I'm really excited. We have Nick Johnson. Nick is a keynote speaker, an author, and a co-founder of EGN, an executive peer network. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Al. It's great to be here. So, Nick, you, uh, my understanding, where are you originally from? I was born in Sweden and moved to Australia, 98, and since then also I worked in Southeast Asia the last 15 years. Okay, wow. So would you say your accent is, is Swedish? It's probably a mix with all that international travel. It is a bit of a combination. I don't have a very strong Swedish accent anymore, but a bit of pickup probably from Australian Asian accent as well. Yeah, right. I've lived overseas as well. And it's so funny meeting people from all over who have such a mix of interesting accents. Um, that's really cool. So, you know, Nick, you're, you have your own personal story of some mental health challenges and some substance abuse, I think, alcohol. Um, and tell us how this starts. Uh, it, my understanding is you were a pretty high, in a high, pretty high profile role and uh, sent overseas uh, to work in Vietnam and Indonesia in the beginning? Yeah, so basically, Al, I think I can even take it one step further. And I think, you know, at the university, I, I like to compete for scholarships. I like to compete for the, the top wing class and all these kind of recognitions. So, so I guess I like to be in spotlight because, 
during the childhood when I was younger, I was always the smallest one. I wasn't picked for the uh, football teams and I was never any good at anything. Uh, but once I came into university in Australia, I felt like I was given a second chance and there was a chance for me to really, you know, try to really go for it and achieve something. And with that, you know, comes the recognition and and you feel like, uh, you know, it flattens your ego by being top of the class and all these things. And that's something that then brought me into the workplace, Al. And uh, there I perhaps, uh, if I look back, perhaps elbowed my way up to the top and until I, I had my dream position as a general director in a big company. Right, right. So when you say uh, it was a second chance to excel, it was primarily through academics. Yeah, first it was through academics at university. But, you know, once you have the taste for being top of the class, then I also wanted to do the same with a career. So while right. I started as an account executive, I, I saw the, already from the beginning I wanted to be, yeah, the boss. Right, right. So did school, uh, did that come natural for you or, or did you really have to bust your rear end to, to get such, a, such high credentials academically? I really sucked at school to speak proper English uh, in the young years, so much so that I, I couldn't even finish high school. I had to come back as an adult wow. when I was more mature uh, to retake the, many of the subjects to actually get out from high school before I could get into university. So 98, I was 23 years of age when I came uh, to university. That probably show how immature I was and I really needed that. Um, uh, those years to go out and get some work experience before I was ready to sit down and ready to actually do the hard work to study. Okay, so you, it, but that is what it took finally. You had to really buckle down and actually study hard uh, to, to be really successful at university. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. awesome. Mm. And that hard work clearly paid off, right? So what kind of uh, role and what kind of company did you land right outside of uh, college? So uh, after then university, you know, I felt like Australia was quite far away from Europe. So I was looking at moving somewhere halfway, which then is Southeast Asia. So my first job was in Bangkok, started as an account executive in an advertising firm. And, and uh, from there on, you know, I moved up the ladder uh, and, and uh, getting a promotion every year or every second year and so on. And it was a range of companies, big international firms mainly. All in Southeast Asia at the time. Yes. So um, in summary, it was Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia. And then uh, for the last four and a half years now, I live in Singapore and my life is a bit different now indeed in the work I do. But when I was in the, should I say, uh, the rat race uh, in, in, in those bigger companies, then um, what I realized when I'm looking back at it, you know, it, it can be quite lonely. And that is what I want to talk to you about today. Also, I'll hear that, you know, it's not the only me who can feel lonely inside those roles. Because if you are if you are shooting for the top, you know, then perhaps instead of going out for lunch with your colleagues and socialize, then maybe you just have a salad in the office, you're trying to get ahead, you're working hard. And that behavior from the studies, I realize hard work pays off, you know, so you're doing more hours. And perhaps you start, you know, isolating yourself to, just to impress the bosses right. uh, and getting the results done. Right. And there was a time uh, where you mentioned, you know, I had read some some of your writing and you mentioned uh, that at, at some point, eventually you became so lonely trying to make it to the top that you started drinking and essentially self-medicating with booze. 
Yes, so uh, uh, the, the last one or two years in the corporate jobs, uh, and when I then have made it to the top, so the job I was shooting for, I was then a general director in a big company with 1,400 staff managing hospitals and clinics in Indonesia. Uh, so it was really my dream job and it came with all the attractiveness to it, the package and so on. But once I found myself there, you know, I, 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 I didn't really know where could I go from here. And it, it was not very pleasant and I wasn't well connected with the local team, then the culture, the language barriers, and I didn't make much effort. I didn't have the tools and I felt like I didn't have someone perhaps in the company I could talk to. I didn't know who to talk to outside. So my way first was to, you know, do exercise and try to look after myself. But once that didn't really help either, I found myself uh, instead of going to the bar after work. And uh, and, and I'm sure Al, you hear, hear many senior executives who feel, well, uh, I deserve a glass of wine after work or uh, I deserve it. I worked hard. And, and, and the issue here, though, is that um, I did it a few times a week from the start, but then it became a daily affair. It became my norm to stop at the bar on the way home and uh, instead of having two drinks, it became three and then it became more uh, until I found myself in a situation that this had become a part of me. It was a bad habit. And uh, uh, before I knew it, I couldn't even break it. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned loneliness. Were you creating new friends at the bar? Or you weren't going out with folks from the company, it sounds like. That's right. So at the bar, yes, I made friends there. And while they were perhaps nice people, they also then had the bad habits I had and perhaps the conversations was not so deep not so meaningful uh, it was more around watching sport and having having drinks and gossiping uh, so it didn't really lead to anything it didn't help me solve my loneliness at work it was you know pushing through the day so i can go and relax you know on, on the weekend and or in the evening at the bar and alcohol became then my friend or, and a bit of medication almost yeah and but everyone, I think, who, who have felt addiction to something, people might be addicted to coffee. And if you don't have that in the morning, then you might be a bit off. And the urge for having that cup of coffee or a cigarette or sugar or whatever it may be. And alcohol is just the same. That's what I found. As long as, you know, if you start drinking it every day before you know it, you have an addiction to it. Uh, yeah. At least most people. Right. Absolutely. And, and just how bad did it get? I mean, were you were you passing out at night? Were you able to worry, wake up and get to the job on time? Were you drinking during the day? So in the beginning, I was quite conscious about it. And uh, I tried to control it. I deliberately signed up for a half marathon or something like that. And then I said, OK, I'm not going to drink for three weeks leading up to this race. So I controlled myself and managed to do that. And, uh, you know, to prove to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic and uh, I think this is a normal path that many take also because we don't want to admit this to ourselves. So I went through that a few years. Um, and then in 2017, 2018, it had gone so far that actually I, I, I was very, my nerve system had taken, uh, you know, a dent from the drinking and I needed to start having that morning drink. And uh, that comes with a lot of shame when you realize, you know, that you're shaky in the morning and in order to be able to get something done, you realize it was a bit better if you had a drink in the morning. So that was a slippery slope. And uh, that that's when I started to get really scared. And I, I realized that then the, the alcohol had basically took over my life, I could still function. And uh, at this time, I could still 
work uh, and do the things, but I needed a, a drink to stabilize myself to be able to do that. Right. And what uh, what did that look like in the morning? I mean, is that like grab a shot of vodka or is it grab a beer on your way out? So in my case, it typically was that I, I went out for a walk in the morning and walk over to one of the convenience stores and, and buy two, two beers and I would drink one perhaps walking back home and then I had one uh, there in the morning. So it was not, you know, to get intoxicated. It was more uh, sort of to medicate myself to calm the nerves uh, Mm, almost like uh, yeah again comparing it with coffee perhaps people feel a little bit there's something missing if you didn't grab that cup of coffee in the morning right. so that was what the beer was for me yeah. uh, at that time uh, but I, I can clearly remember Al, one morning when I was gonna have a meeting face to face like a coffee meeting at 10 in the morning and I felt well I should not drink before then maybe I will be be smelling uh, of alcohol so I didn't, but I felt very, very lost in that meeting. I felt like something was missing for me and I couldn't wait for the meeting to be over so I could run around the corner and have a drink. Right, right. Wow, and it's interesting, and I, I think, like you said, probably a lot of people do it, how you signed up for a marathon and quit drinking for three weeks kind of just to justify, like, see, I don't have a problem. Look at that. I can stop anytime I want to. Exactly. And how many people don't we hear take, for example, January off every year or something like that, and they're proud of it and share it. Well, see, I don't have a problem. And the issue is that perhaps we fool ourselves. I think the most addicts can by willpower put uh, put this off for a time. But what I found in the in the end Al, that I couldn't do this, that's the scary part, you, you know, when you are not able to control yourself, the like the episode I mentioned when I went to that meeting. And uh, then you sort of give up and that's when the addiction has taken over your life and you realize you just have to drink. Um, So that was on my way to to rock bottom, which I hit one or two months just after that. Yeah. And and how would you describe rock bottom? Yeah. So that was when I had to drink or I had to I had to take some uh, Valium or something like that to calm my nerves uh, just to function. It was a very scary place. And I remember my health was so bad. I was lying in the bed, you know, my heart is rushing because uh, my heart rate was too high. Uh, I also had a very swollen foot and I went to doctors, they couldn't really understand what was wrong with it. Uh, so all kind of things happening to the body, it's breaking down basically. I had vocal cord infection, I lost my voice and, you know, coughing blood from that. And it was just very scary wow. to be in that, you know, and you realize then that and I couldn't then stop, so all I could do was drink. And I didn't, I didn't drink the blackout. I didn't really get intoxicated. It was more to medicate myself, slowly drinking throughout the day. So, so that was the state I was in. And, and, and rock bottom then, in my case, meant that I was not suicidal, but I realized that I was going to die. So it's sort of a kind of suicide if you keep drinking when you realize that this is going to kill you but you still do it anyway and so so what i did then was that i wrote my will my testament and i sent all these documents to my ex-wife to my parents um, and also i had just gotten remarried uh, this month Uh, we're talking now april 2018 i had remarried and i gave her the documents and you know, she was just shocked and surprised. She didn't realize that I was in such a bad state. So that was the, the saver, though, that, that I had sort of given up, written all these documents, given it to people, because then they, they understood finally, wow, there's something really wrong 
with Nick. And then they, I started to speak to the people close to me. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Mm. What were those conversations like and just how difficult? That must have been so difficult for you. It was very difficult, but it was also a release because I had tried to keep the facade together. And my parents, had, uh, who lived still in Sweden at the time and now also, they had only seen, you know, the happy smiling pictures on Facebook and social media. I mean, we put out up an image we want people to oh, see, yeah. right? They didn't see the, the dark sides. So they didn't see me 7 a.m. in the morning walking to get a beer or, or coughing blood when I had a vocal cord infection. They didn't see my swollen foot. That would not be pictures that I put up on social media. Right. So therefore, no one really knew. And because I was just remarried, she only saw a smiling, a happy person on the outside. She didn't also know how I was suffering inside. Uh, so when I started to have the conversations with everyone, the, the, everyone wanted to help. My my new wife took me to a doctor immediately. And surprise, surprise, the doctor also wanted to help and listen. And, and then I was on my way to recovery and and. Uh, potentially I was up for some expensive medical bills. So I had to talk to my parents and asking for some support around this. Right. And I had a lot of fear of telling my parents about this. But as soon as I have explained it, they also, of course, wanted to help and support. So uh, I started to get a lot of sympathy and I was in a much better place. So the key here was just the fact that I started to tell the people close to me uh, what was going on and how I felt. Yeah, I think that's a huge point, right? It is so important to reach out and to ask for help, and it's so difficult to do. But it oftentimes, I think, is a life-saving uh, thing to do. Yes, absolutely. And this is the key point here. We need to speak. And as I think uh, it's just that most people, and I think especially as men, we are so bad at, at doing that. And while I had friends, uh, you know, I went to, to watch sport with uh, on, and drink with at the bar, perhaps the conversations didn't go deep. No one really would know how you feel inside. You might talk that it's difficult at work, that you have some conflict with someone, maybe you gossip about something. But to say, uh, to express how you feel, that yeah. is something that we don't really do uh, 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 enough, I would say. Right, right. Well, it turns out that that you writing your will and sharing that with with several members of your family was really the life-saving step that that allowed them to reach out to you to talk like wow we didn't know you were in such a tough situation and i wonder i mean looking back do you think that was really part of the reason for writing those letters was more more so than like getting your end of life things all wrapped up and nice and neat for people was it more about like letting people know hey i'm really struggling here and it was kind of a call out for help it seems like it may have been yes it, it may seem like a cry for help and i uh, it's almost like someone who would self-harm themselves and in this way perhaps you know alcohol was my self-harm and uh, the letters was this cry for help and it worked it was not how i thought about it or, or, or was thinking about it i guess it was just fear that brought it to me and and i think you know that when we are in that state when we feel that we almost given up hope we also don't want to be a burden to other people so it was basically out of that i believe i wrote it because i felt you know well i have a few dollars here i have this life insurance and i took up a life insurance by the way and and i wanted to make sure that you know my son who lives uh, with my ex-wife would would get access to this and be aware so that if I 
did leave, then you know they would have something. That was my motivation, right. but I think at least my conscious motivation. But it was probably subconscious as well uh, as a cry for help. Yeah, right. Wow. So people started reaching out to you, and um, you know, one of the questions I have is when you describe your vocal cords and your swollen uh, foot, are those related to the heavy drinking? Yeah, yes. And also, um, I didn't see any psychologist at the time. But when I showed pictures on it later on, and one of the psychologists said that the, it was psychosomatic illness, basically from racing from that I had so much anxiety internally that it even started to uh, show up on the outside of my body. Yeah, it starts all of that manifests physically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Wow. In fact, they mentioned that as a, a symptom of mental illness, sometimes like unexplained illnesses or, you know, stomach aches, headaches. Um, but even like in your case, physical, your foot swelling, your vocal cords getting an infection. Wow. So yeah. tell us, uh, once people started reaching out, what what were your next steps? And, you know, were you straightforward and with everybody who reached out to you right away? Or did it take some a little bit of coaxing you into talking or did you share right away and what what types of steps did you get for help then no i revealed as little as possible and i was still trying to keep it together and right. you know making it look like it wasn't too bad right yeah. um, and uh, i managed to talk them and also the doctors in that i don't need inpatients i was quite scared of that i so i didn't get the inpatients i managed to get my wife to help talk to the doctor and I got some medicine uh, as an out, outpatient and managed to go home and take some medicine. They gave me some injection also. And so I managed to break it. And from that uh, uh, hospital visit then uh, in May 2018, I have not had a drink of alcohol since. Wow. Uh, but but yeah, it's amazing. It's a miracle, Al, but That's it's more awesome. to it as well. But after we left the hospital with the medicine, you know, and I made a commitment to myself and my wife that I, I, this is it, you know, I have a chance here now, let's just do this. Uh, we also went to see a friend of mine who had had some alcohol issues before, and uh, she shared with us that, you know, she had some support from an anonymous support group for problem drinkers. Uh, she gave me a few phone numbers, I called them, and I also got support there. And that was my next step in my recovery journey and uh, coming into these rooms and then listening to others who have been there before. In this case, it was a group mainly for senior executives as well. So I could feel that I could, you know, associate with them. I could hear their stories. And here I was, you know, just coming in uh, with a few days sobriety here. Yeah. And I could hear someone who had three months, someone had a year, someone was there, you know, with five gave, years. Gave you a sense of hope absolutely hope and they also you know were willing to help me and share with me and and take me through the, the journey did you say that was actually an aa group alcoholics anonymous the same that we have here in the u.s yes it's a similar okay. kind of organizations also right. over here yes awesome and you know you mentioned leaving the hospital with medications were those strictly for the throat and the foot or did you get some antidepressants or other types of medicines it, it was also antidepressant and also to uh, help my liver and, and organs to recover and, and so on from right, this, yes. Right. And then, uh, and then you quit from that day, you said, and never had another drink. 
That's right. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, that's fantastic. You know, um, I've shared on this show before that I had a, a friend who was in a really an awesome, high, pretty high level position as a lobbyist for one of our huge hospitals here. And he worked a lot in politics and he was known throughout the state actually. And he ended up dying from drinking too much. And it was so sad to witness and watch it. And I never really realized what alcoholism does to somebody until I was dealing with him. Yeah, it's very sad to see. I also have sadly lost some friends. And, you know, many times you will hear, oh, they died from an accident. They died from a heart attack and so on. But when you dig a little bit deeper, alcohol is you know, behind a lot yeah. of deaths. I think, I think especially of people in the in the 40 to 60s. Right. And when you go to AA, I know it's a, a support group and so forth. It's not actually, it's different though than like a treatment facility, correct? Yes, it's different. And many people may need both. Right. Uh, so in my, in my case, I saw the doctors and so on. And, and I, I managed to do it with the medicine without rehab or, or a facility yeah. many people may need if they are more severe than my case then probably they need to be impatient and really uh, you know supported for perhaps a few weeks to really break the alcohol before they can come in right. uh, to the support group so the 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 anonymous uh, support groups and you have so many for all kind of addictions alcohol is just one of them that that's not a treatment facility that's more for a, a a daycare, can you say, that you attend a meeting, you know, during the days and yeah. sharing best practice, basically, how yeah. people are it's dealing. It's a support with... group, really, mm. which is mm. awesome. I, I'm a huge believer in support groups um, because, like you said, you, you get hope, right? You First of all, you can share because you know everybody's been where you were, right? So there's no shame involved because you know they're going to understand and get it right? And they're not going to judge you. And then you get these messages of hope, people who have been there. And and like you said, three months out, five months out, five years out and hadn't had a drink. Um, That's really cool. Did, were any of the medicines directly related to stopping you from drinking? No, if I recall correctly, I think there was some sleeping pills, some anti-anxiety there. So uh, I didn't take uh, any alcohol related as such, like okay. you had antibiotics and these kind of medicines. I didn't take those. Yeah, I'm not even sure what it was, but my friend for a while was on a medicine and he said the, the way the medicine worked was that if he was taking the medicine as he was supposed to be and then he had a drink, it would actually make him throw up. Yes, that's the that's the antibiotics kind of uh, medicine. Okay. Uh, I, I didn't get that and take that, no. Yeah. Awesome. Mm. Awesome. And uh, how long did you go to AA, the support groups? Was it a couple times a week and are you still going? And so um, at that time it was daily. Uh, they typically have a saying that you should do, uh, try to do 90 days in a row when you first come in. So you really uh, get that support uh, and so that you don't fall back into a relapse and so on and really fully understand the program. So the first 90 days are crucial. Um, so I tried to do uh, all those days, and then over the years, perhaps it, it started. To, I started to reduce from perhaps five days, three days. Now I typically attend two days a week, okay. and it's more to give back. Al. Now yes. it's about helping the others. Now it's me who's there for the ones who are coming in uh, just fresh. Yeah. 
That's awesome, though, and, and it's really good for you, too, as one giving back. Absolutely. There's nothing yeah. better than the feel of being of service for other people. And there's a saying in, in all these support groups, you know, the gift that was given to you, you have to give it back to keep it. And I like that saying. Yeah, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. And so would you attribute most of your recovery to the support group? I think it's a combination here of, you know, the fact that I had I have my the support of my family. My wife has been a huge supporter the whole time. She, even though she didn't have any alcohol problems, she also stopped drinking alcohol the same day. So we have, oh, nice. you know, changed our habits together. We have changed our friends uh, to people who also uh, prefer to do, you know, exercise and those kind of activities instead of, you know, partying and drinking. So in that sense, she has been a wonderful supporter. Uh, yes, in the early days, the doctor, the, that medical treatment was uh, was life-saving in this case. But it is indeed, uh, the support group has just been always there and wonderful and a reminder that, you know, it, because when I see a newcomer coming in, it takes me right back and I'll be reminded about, uh, okay, so this is how how it was. And I need to make sure that I don't come back to it. I need to be reminded so I don't pick up a drink again because even though perhaps I could control it for a month, a year or two. But before I know it, the addiction will be perhaps back in, 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 in full steam again. And yeah. then I'll be sitting there. Yeah. I'm glad you realize that because it's just, it's just not worth it. You know, even if it was one night of drinking, it's just why, why risk it? Exactly. You know? Um, and then I know you, uh, you do a lot of physical activity and I would imagine that was a part of your recovery. Yeah, so step by step, I started basically taper off the medicine they gave me, like the the anti-anxiety pills and so on. Uh, so I was reducing the dose and, and instead I started to exercise. And I started by just walking and then slow jog walking, basically. Uh, you know, you, you walk a mile, you jog a mile and, and things like that. Uh, so step by step, I was, uh, you know, coming into getting fit. And uh, I call it even in my book, the, the, the real happy pill, uh, which is exercise. So I would also, alloc uh, you know, allocate a lot of my recoveries to physical exercise. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else that you would attribute it to? So, I mean, you've mentioned the support of family and and friends and especially your wife. You've mentioned uh, medicine early on, exercise. Anything else that you would attribute it to? Yeah, so at that time, I shared my story in the support groups and with my close family. So the big step was um, about a year into my recovery. At this stage, I had kept it reasonably secret and it got confidential. So people on the outside didn't really know that I'd gone through. Uh, they didn't know I had a crisis. They didn't know I had uh, you know fallen so deep as I had. I had kept that secret. People had seen that I picked up exercise again and pe some people understood that I stopped drinking. But that said, they didn't realize how big of a problem I had with alcohol at that time. But the life-changing event then in 2019 uh, was that a friend of mine uh, who I'd worked with and done some events with died of suicide suddenly. And that changed everything for me. Oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, in what way did that change everything for you? So... I decided immediately to contact his family, his brother, 
he was very close with to ask what happened and you know he was he didn't have any answers he didn't know uh i didn't understand because uh, we were friends on facebook and he had just come back from mount everest he had climbed to the base camp which was one of his live streams he was sharing pictures on social media of him and his girlfriend and saying that he's never been happier so on the outside everything looked you know perfectly so i kept digging deeper trying to figure out what happened here uh we couldn't find any answers and instead what i did i called up the local suicide prevention agency here in singapore i became a fundraiser and volunteer immediately set up an account to raise uh, funds for this and i made a video about this case and and it went viral and very very quickly i was receiving messages and donations from all around the world and including a radio station who called me and uh, I was not really ready and prepared for this conversation on the radio, but they dug pretty deep in half an hour. So before I knew it, I was then sharing live on radio that about my journey uh, that I have gone through. Uh, so then after that, obviously, with my story out there on radio, there was no turning back. So that was <laughs> right. the first time I shared my story. Wow. Publicly. Yes, because I, he, they were asking me about this, you know, the funds and the loneliness and they asked me, you know, if I had suffered from anything like this. And that's when, you know, I started to open up and, and sharing. And, I, and because I had been quite comfortable sharing this then for one year inside the rooms, it wasn't such a big step. But here it was, you know, and people, of course, were shocked. And after that, uh, I had uh, a lot of newspapers contact me and it resulted in a four page feature article in one of the biggest business magazines here in Singapore, which, uh, according to my understanding, is still today the biggest mental health piece in the history of this country in a business magazine wow. uh, where they interviewed me and, and covering this story. So this, uh, of course, then led to more, more interviews and so on. And I felt here that I was starting to talk about something that no one else was comfortable talking about. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Like that was a, a huge turning point in your life. It sounds like. Yes, and it also was in my recovery. It was like my recovery just took for, to the next level because now the stigma that I had and you know being careful about talking about what have happened outside these confidential space, suddenly I could talk to everybody about it, and uh, I got a lot of uh, you know self um, uh, motivation from this yeah. project. And I saw I was onto something, and I spoke then with my friend, uh, a friend's brothers uh, after the suicide. And I asked for his permission to put all these articles together and write a book about it. And he's, he said, uh, for all means, uh, shout it out loud. That's what my brother would have wanted you to do. Wow. And of course, with those words, I felt, okay, there's no turning back here now. I've just yeah. promised to write a book on this. So that's what I went to do. Wow. Did it feel, you know, once you shared on the radio and you mentioned you could then talk openly with everybody about it, it seems like that would be a bit liberating. Yes, it was. And uh, at this time, I was not in the corporate, uh, in a big corporate firm anymore, because then it would have been very difficult to do this. You perhaps might have needed approval of head of communication, HR, and you couldn't just go on radio and start writing. But I had then uh, started joining a, a smaller company as my own little business owner, uh, and basically, so in that sense, you know, I could speak freely, I could speak from my heart. And my main intention here was just to share my story so that other people could learn from it. So they also don't come there. And when you start to 
live closer to your purpose and that's when you find happiness in life absolutely absolutely Wow, that's really cool. You know, you just mentioned one thing that that got me really interested because we kind of skipped over it a bit. So you mentioned that you were no longer at a large firm in a in a top role, but you were with a small company. When did you leave the large larger firm, and how did that all pan out for you? So already in 2018, before my crash, I had moved over to this company. So I just started then. And so I found myself then in in my new job, basically creating confidential peer groups uh, for senior executives. Uh, So it was not mental health related specifically. It could cover that. But it was more about, you know, executives challenges, perhaps with uh, conflicts in the teams, cultural understandings, managing the boss, managing your head office, all these kind of issues that you're facing uh, uh, as an executive recovered. So as I was listening to them in these meetings when I still was not well, I could at least start to understand that, okay, the feelings I had when I was in my job, it was not only me. Actually, many, many executive feels like this. So it's already started to plant some seeds in me and actually helping me to not blame myself so much that I couldn't make it work in the, in the corporate ladder since everyone else was feeling like this. Right, right. So you had left, and it, when you left, is it the EGN organization that you had founded once you left the larger organization? Yes, and okay. uh, I, I have the franchise rights for this in Singapore. It's actually a company that was founded in uh, uh, 92 in Denmark. So I've been around for a while, and I, it was pleasant for me then to, to take over this here in Singapore. Uh, and that's what I still do today. Wow, that's awesome. And I hear you saying it's, you know, executives can reach out to one another um, confidentially and talk about just challenges they deal with day to day or or anything like that. And you said that it could be related to mental health, but it doesn't have to be. But but people may explore that as well with with peers, I would imagine. Yeah. So basically, the concept is that uh, they join six times a year for half a day uh, meeting, which is facilitated where they come in and discuss the work-related challenges. And obviously, during, especially during the pandemic, when we had lockdowns, many of the challenges would be around running virtual teams, teams you know, falling off by depression and loneliness and isolation. So how to solve that for your teams and so on. So in that sense, and also many times it would be look after yourself, right? And the, the good thing here, Al, was that I by now had my story out in the open and I engaged the, all the members in the network in my book writing in the sense that I told them, and we have 700 members now, and I told them I'm writing a book on this topic. I had a survey for them all to fill in and the results are actually a part of the book. I also even had a box they could tick if I could interview them for the book. So in that sense... Uh, they felt they were part of it, and many of the executives in the network were anonymously interviewed. And are their stories of loneliness and depression is also included in the book, and yeah. how they get out of it, especially. Right, that's awesome. And the, so, the book that you did write is called Executive Loneliness, correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah, and when was it published? It was published in 2020. So you're now right in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, awesome, and. Uh, can you share more with us about the book? Yeah, so basically then, and I can share a couple of key found findings then. So once I interviewed them in 
2019 asking them, you know, how many of them have been suffering from loneliness uh, currently or in the past, 30% actually said yes. And that seems to be aligned with a global average, about 33% of adults uh, have been suffering from loneliness, according to Statista as well. And um, when I then did the survey again in 2020, when we are in the lockdowns and so on, then the number had doubled. So 59% then wow. uh, admit to suffering from loneliness. So of course, then working remotely and uh, having the lockdown. So it just shows that indeed it took a toll on senior executives this. Um, then I, when I push it a bit further to ask, okay, um, so 30% and then 59% during 2020, who are suffering from this. Do you talk about this in your company? Would you mention it to your boss or your HR? 84% say that they would not do this. This is not something they're willing wow. to mention the company. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that stands out right now. That just means that people uh, are worried about, if I say this to a boss, maybe I'm not up for the next promotion. What yeah. about my bonus? Uh, will they trust that I can do this? Because we're talking leaders here, and leaders are perhaps in their eyes, you know, seen uh, as shouldn't be able to hold it together. They should be able to lead and uh, they don't want to show any weakness. So that's right. the issue. Um, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, that speaks so much to the stigma, right? Um, the stigma about the fear of talking about it and, and the actual discrimination that does happen because there is some reality of maybe not getting promotions when people know that you've been through depression or, or dealing with some mental health challenges. But it's really sad because it, it makes those leaders keep quiet about it, keep stuffing those feelings down, which is not healthy, and it also just it it is poor, it's a bad thing for the the whole climate and culture of the organization, right? Imagine if you had a leader who could tell people, you know, I have struggled, I have dealt with this, and I have been able to work through it and overcome it. And I think it just yeah, it's tough to to grapple with, but that does not surprise me in the eighty percent. Yeah, exactly. And then I, I did some research also around you know. Uh, well, if, you, if you're suffering, you don't tell your company about it, you go and see a professional about it. And here's another scary thing. It shows that 75% actually do not even go and seek professional help for it. Oh. Because again, worried about you know the stigma, someone will see them there at the clinic, or maybe it will show up in my medical service report, or you know maybe someone will find out. So yeah. people just, I mean, imagine if you treat a broken arm like this. No, I'm not going to see any help for it. Yeah. Why do I be so scared just because it's mental related? It's wow. And, you know, I mean, while, while I feel like so kind of shocked and angered at it almost, I completely understand it as well. I went through it myself. I remember going to the doctor for the first time and the first handful of times and always looking around like, who's going to see me here and what, and maybe I could just tell them I was here for a physical if somebody asks me who I know and see. But then I ended up going to a behavioral health clinic and I was like, oh my, like I didn't even want to go walk in that door worried that I'd see somebody in the waiting room and I could no longer use the excuse of, I'm here for the eye doctor or I'm here for a physical, you know, so I understand that shame that goes along with it, but that's why we got to get rid of the stigma. So people can reach out for help. 10 years is the average that somebody lives with depression before reaching out for help. 10 years. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, that's what I seen as well, you know, and, and for everyone I interviewed for the uh, book, Al here, uh, 
it, it was for them the first time they admitted to another person that, you know, they were going through some difficulties. They have not seen professional help. So I also had to be a bit careful when I had these interviews uh, because of this, uh, because I was stepping into some very, very sensitive topics. And I remember especially one woman I interviewed for the book and the first interview, she didn't declare much, but she sent me an SMS a few days later and asked if we could just meet again. Uh, I went to see her again and she started to basically break out in tears. Uh, and uh, and she said, it's, uh, it's something more I need to tell you. I have uh, rehearsed my own suicide twice. And of wow. course, I was completely shocked to hear this. Yeah. Um, here was a woman, a managing director for a big international bank, admitting to me that she you know, planned her own suicide twice. And she said, I want to help you and I want this to be part of the book. So this story is actually in the book. And uh, uh, the, the beautiful thing out of this is that what came out of that meeting is that she promised me, uh, which she later followed up with, to, to go and see a, a, a psychologist and ex explain this. And the psychologist called in the husband. The three of them met and spoke about this and talked through this. She's now overcome this episode, left it behind. And not only is her story anonymously in the book, but at this time, um, it was also the, the, the timing of the lockdowns and so on. She decided to get a copy of my book and give it to her team members for them to read. Awesome. And she didn't tell them that it was her in the book until after in an all-hands meeting. So <laughs> wow. that was her way to breaking it to them. Wow. Wow. Courageous. And, and really interesting that at first she didn't open up at all. And then she, I wonder, you know, what exactly went through her mind to get her to reach out. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. And and the fact that, you know, so many times perhaps we don't feel safe to open up to someone, but the fact that, you know, she had heard me on radio, she's seen me in, in the newspaper, the fact that, you know, I reached out and said, I'm writing a book about this and can I interview you anonymously? And she felt that it was safe enough to tick that box uh, because she, I, we had built up some trust between us and she thought that this is a safe time for me to speak about this. Right. Wow. Hmm. That is awesome. Um, anything else that you'd like to share about your book? It sounds fantastic. No, I think yeah, I was quite lucky with the timing. I mean, obviously, I started to write it before the pandemic, and who would have known how isolated we would have been uh, during this pandemic? So the timing was there, and it was a blessing because just when the book came out, everyone was working from home, and you know, this was the time when all the Zoom meetings and online virtual meetings became hip and they and the book was out and they needed some speaker for the all hands meeting. So I was booked back to back wow. almost every day, you know, okay. sharing about my story, other stories in the book and talking about, you know, how to overcome loneliness. And so that's when, you know, uh, the, the book became a, a bestseller at the time. And a lot of executives, though, said, uh, I don't really have time to read. Can you make it an audiobook? So I contacted Audible and, and they bought into the idea. So I have a professional narrator also who, who read it. So for anyone who wants to look it up on, on Audible, you can find Executive Loneliness there now, too. Oh, that's awesome. And it seems like, in my mind, I'm thinking that obviously the book is written towards the the audience would be the executives themselves. But it seems like it would be, you know, in my mind, entrepreneurs I hear oftentimes deal with depression because of just the challenges of that type of work. And again, like you said, the loneliness too. So I would imagine entrepreneurs would, would get a lot out of your book and any others that you would think? 
No, you are first day on the entrepreneurs. You are absolutely correct. Also, uh, before the pandemic, my company here, EGN, then we only had uh, peer network groups for senior executives. But just like you said, many executives then, especially sorry, entrepreneurs also during the pandemic felt isolated, felt lonely, felt pressured. So we decided to create groups for them as well. We now have 100 entrepreneurs. Uh, in our network and they also do the sharing so uh, it's been a blessing for them as well Um, uh, so it just shows you know that I think the pandemic has had a positive effect when it comes to at least getting together people are a little bit more open a little bit more vulnerable now but we still have a long way to go when it comes to discussing uh, mental health issues yeah It, it has pulled people together across the oceans right like we can just like this interview, for example, I mean, and maybe as top executives, maybe there were always those kind of functions like Zoom meetings and stuff, but it's really opened that up for support groups and, and so many people. That has been one one kind of positive. And the, all of the platforms, I think, have all been at odds, you know, bettering their system so that they could be the, the top platform for video conferencing and so forth. Well, this is fantastic. What uh, if people want to reach out to you and want to find your book and find out about the um, executive peer networking groups? What's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, so they can find me on LinkedIn. And my name is uh, Nick Johnson. That's N-I-C-K. And Johnson is spelled J-O-N-S-S-O-N. Otherwise, they can go to Amazon or uh, on Audible and look up Executive Loneliness. And how about uh, to find the peer network groups? Would that be through your LinkedIn would be best? Yeah, definitely. On my LinkedIn, there's a link right there to uh, EGN, which is called uh, Executive Global Network. Executive Global Network. Awesome. And then you also have your own website, correct? Yes, nickjohnson.com. Okay, and just a reminder that it's J-O-N-S-S-O-N, nickjohnson.com. Not a very common spelling of Johnson here in the U.S., but probably very Scandinavian, I bet. Yes, there you go, Al. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Nick, this has been great. You know, the last question I want to ask you is a question I ask all of my guests. What would be um, your biggest piece of advice if somebody is listening right now, even say a top executive who knows they've been struggling and either know they've been dealing with loneliness and depression or not sure what's going on, what kind of uh, advice would you give them? Make sure you share it with someone and it doesn't really matter who it is because as long as we speak to someone about it, it seems like half of the problem is already solved. The answer start to come to us. So if you have a friend, a colleague, a husband, a wife, uh, Talk to them. If you don't feel that that's safe enough, uh, a doctor, a psychologist, a coach, or perhaps uh, look up one of the anonymous support groups. You have something for every kind of addiction or issue if you have some problems, and they will welcome you, and there you can share about it. Awesome. All right, Nick. Well, this has been incredible. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all of the, the good work that you've been putting out into the world to help get rid of the stigma, to help um, executive leaders deal with loneliness and depression. And uh, I also want to thank you for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Al, for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. All right. Well, make sure you stay healthy. You too. 
Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show, or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. 